regenerative medicine today. This is John Murray. It's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Thomas Gilbert. Dr. Gilbert is an assistant professor at the University of Pittsburgh in the departments of surgery and bioengineering. Uh, Dr. Gilbert, it's a pleasure to have you on regenerative medicine today. It's a pleasure to be here. Dr. Gilbert, I understand that your interests are in tissue engineering as it relates to the airway, and also you have uh, programs uh, pertaining to uh, cardiac problems, and particularly for pediatric cardiac issues. Perhaps you can begin this discussion by giving us a bit of an overview on uh, your program and where it stands. Absolutely. The main focus of my research is in the airway. And we are focusing on trying to reconstruct the trachea and also to prevent fibrosis in the lungs. The focus is primarily in both pediatric and adult applications for the airway. In the cardiac applications, we're focusing primarily on congenital defects in pediatric patients. In the airway, the injuries can occur due to trauma or surgical-related injury, in which case the trachea will actually close due to either an obstruction or a softening of the cartilage. And this often results in the need for a removal of that tracheal tissue. And there are no current ways to replace that other than to just bring the ends of the existing trachea back together. That's possible in some cases, but in other cases, when the resection is particularly large, the amount of tissue that is left to reconstruct the trachea is insufficient, leading to increased tension and a loss of blood flow that then causes subsequent injury again. So what we've been doing is looking at tracheal-derived extracellular matrix as a substrate for replacing that tracheal tissue and allowing that to promote site-specific cell differentiation, both for epithelial cells and chondrocytes. So if I can interject and ask for a point of clarification, I just understood you to say that you're using tracheal-derived extracellular matrix. So I know that in some of our previous guests on this podcast that talked about extracellular matrix, but it's been principally porcine-derived. So there is a difference here? The material that we're working with is also porcine tracheal extracellular matrix. But this case, the extracellular matrix is derived specifically from the tissue that we're trying to reconstruct as opposed to deriving the extracellular matrix from the small intestine or the urinary bladder, which are two commercially available forms of extracellular matrix. So this would be porcine-derived trachea that is the source of the ECM. That's been the focus of the bulk of our work, though we think that the implications for our work would also be relevant to tracheal allograft from human patients that could also be decellularized and used for surgical reconstruction. So in a very simplistic sense, uh, trachea is a tubular structure that you're trying to tissue engineer a new tubular section to replace the diseased or damaged section. Is that a correct, simplistic analogy? That's a simplistic analogy, yes. I understand that the structure is more complex than that. Where I wanted to go with this discussion is I understood you to say that you're also working on lungs. At least from my perception, the lung is a lot more complex structure. It fits into this category of what some people call a solid organ. So how does the tissue engineering work in the lung as opposed to the trachea? Well, there are a couple of different approaches that we're looking at currently. One approach is to try to modulate injury that occurs in the lungs, particularly surrounding a topic of pulmonary fibrosis. 
Pulmonary fibrosis comes in many forms. It's usually associated with chronic exposure to different contaminants in the air, and nobody really knows the cause. We've been working to see if there's any way that we can actually prevent or reverse that fibrosis from occurring, actually also using an extracellular matrix. We're evaluating a variety of different tissue sources for that extracellular matrix. In one form, when derived from the urinary bladder matrix, we have found that we can actually prevent fibrosis from occurring when an acute injury is induced in the lungs. We're now trying to understand the mechanisms for the prevention of that fibrosis to see whether it has implications for the more chronic idiopathic causes of fibrosis. So the ECM that's delivered to the lung, I assume it's an aerosol? It's a, a fine powder at this point. Ideally, we would be able to aerosolize it and deliver it through an inhaler. Currently, we're instilling it into the lungs in a saline solution. So I believe these are beginnings of these investigations. It sounds like you have already made some significant progress, but from the perspective of our listeners who are interested in how these technologies might help them or their loved ones, I presume that we're multiple years away from being able to do clinical studies in these technologies? Absolutely. In the trachea, there's probably a little closer. Uh, There actually is an example of a clinical case in which a extracellular matrix-derived tracheal scaffold has been used in a patient. This was done in Europe where they took a human decellularized trachea, seeded it with the patient's own cells from the epithelium and, and also some bone marrow cells to rebuild the chondrocytes, and they used that to reconstruct the left stem bronchus, which is one of the smaller portions of the airway that leads to one lobe of the lung. And that patient has survived now for over a year. But that's a single case, and for broad utilization of this approach, will probably be five years down the road. The lung is less mature. We have a lot more work to do. That will probably take 10 to 15 years, I would estimate. So you mentioned this uh, European case of a human trachea. What are the pros and cons of using a human trachea as opposed to the uh, tissue-engineered approach that you're pursuing? Well, using the human trachea, there are a number of different limitations. One is the availability of the tissue. There's a limitation in terms of the number of donors that actually provide tissues, and tissues have to be prepared in a certain way. The tracheas may not be the highest priority. Many of the donors are providing hearts, lungs, and in those cases, they actually need a portion of the trachea to be left intact so that they can perform the surgeries for those transplants. Problems are disease transmission and the like, which could require some degree of immune compromising the patient uh, so that they can actually tolerate the tissue. What we're referring to using a totally decellularized trachea, we know that these materials are accepted by the body. There's limited immune response, and we would also be thinking about using autologous cells from the patient in order to provide the biologic effects that are necessary. Although, to some extent, we think that the scaffold itself may be able to be repopulated by the cells in vivo without any additional seeding or or excess cost to actually growing these outside the body. Dr. Gilbert, this is very fascinating, and I appreciate your summarizing your airway studies for us. We mentioned that at the outset of this discussion that you also were interested in pediatric cardiac needs. Can you give us an overview of that, please? Yes. In the pediatric cases, one of the biggest problems, one of the most challenging problems is hypoplastic left heart syndrome. 
this is a case in which the child's heart doesn't develop the left side, which is the side of the heart that is principally responsible for pushing blood all through the systemic circulation. This requires a series of three surgeries then to reroute blood so that you get adequate oxygenation of the blood and then it goes to all parts of the body. Currently, all of these procedures are using synthetic materials that do not grow with the patient and in some cases in which they're using a modified or processed human tissue, what I mentioned before about immunocompromising the patient, these patients actually become sensitized to antigens from a different patient that would then prevent them from being able to accept a transplant later in life. So what we're approaching, looking at, is ways to tissue engineer these different surgical procedures or provide tissue engineering solutions for these different surgical procedures so that there's growth potential for the patient without additional revision surgeries and so that there's no risk of the patient being unable to receive a transplant later in life. Very fascinating. So you say the current clinical procedure is to do three successive surgeries? Yes. In the first procedure, which is done in the first months after the child is born, what they do is actually reroute all the blood flow from the left ventricle or what's left of the left ventricle and reroute that blood through through the systemic circulation. And to do this, they have to actually reconstruct the aorta of the child and they use a homograph material to do this. And this is what I was referring to earlier where the homograph material has antigens that would be different than the child's antigens and then would cause a sensitization that would prevent the transplantation later in life. So we're evaluating decellularized extracellular matrix as a solution to that part of the problem. Another aspect of these three surgeries that we're focusing on is in the third procedure, which is the Norwood procedure. And in that procedure, they use what is called a Fontan conduit to reroute blood from the inferior vena cava directly into the lungs, thereby fully bypassing the heart as the blood circulates through the pulmonary system. When this occurs, there's an increase in systemic blood pressure by about 15 millimeters of mercury. And this is enough to cause a long-term increase in pressure on the heart, which can lead to early failure of the heart, actually in the patient's 20s or 30s, basically in their young adulthood. These procedures have only been done for about the last 35, 40 years, so, so we're still learning about these long-range complications of these procedures. As I was talking about with the immune sensitization, this is where that becomes a big problem because now the, the patient, because they've ex received a homograph material, are no longer able to receive the transplant that they need in their early adulthood. So what we're thinking in terms of a way to overcome this problem is to actually develop a heterotopic contractile muscle that would replace the inferior vena cava to reroute the blood through the lungs so that we can actually impart some energy to the blood to push it through the lungs, thereby overcoming that additional 15 millimeters of mercury, which isn't very much, that would then take that load off of the rest of the heart and potentially allow a much longer lifespan for the heart. So, as I understand this, you're trying to create a tissue-engineered structure that you can externally electrically stimulate to help with the pumping of the blood. Is that correct? That's correct. Electrical stimulation would be one methodology to do this. There's also possible that we could induce, by using cardiac tissue, to allow it to become re-innervated in the body and actually pulse spontaneously, but that would take an additional level of complexity. So initially, we would look at some type of electrical stimulation. 
If you're successful with your endeavor, it certainly would simplify a very important therapy for people who have relatively few choices in terms of how to be treated initially and what their long-term survivability is. Dr. Gilbert, I understand you have some other interests and endeavors as it relates to uh, cardiac care. Yes, also in this area of congenital heart defect repair, we're interested in atrial septal defect reconstruction. So in this case, what happens is when the heart forms, there's a hole that goes between the left and right atrium, which are the two upper chambers of the heart. And this causes a decrease in oxygenation of the blood over lifetime and is by far the most common congenital defect. So the most common way that these are treated now is to take a structure that has flanges on either side that can be passed into the heart through a catheter and using a metal that has shape memory properties called nitinol, it can actually form uh, to the shape that it needs inside the body, thereby closing that hole. One of the challenges with this approach is that the nitinol then remains in the body for the life of the patient. And any time that there's a small deformable metal in the body, there's a risk of erosion. They could actually cut through the tissue and cause bleeding or ultimately rupture of the tissue later in life at a time that's unpredictable. So what we're doing is trying to look at degradable metals as a way to deliver the patch that is of interest. We're still focusing on the patches in ECM, but it would not be limited to that in any sense. So these degradable metals would be able to deliver the device and then as the patient's own tissue would actually remodel and grow into that space and, and fill the hole, over time the metal would degrade away and be rem completely removed from the body, leaving very biocompatible degradation products that could actually be used by the body to rebuild bone or any other types of tissues. We think that this approach of the degradable metals has a broad range of application we're actually also thinking about it for tracheal stenting, and there's some other collaborators are looking at it and for tissues like other bone and, and the like. So I think this is an exciting new opportunity. Certainly fascinating to think about degradable metals. When I think of degradable metals, I think about metals that rust and date in a very undesirable manner. I gather from what you just described to us, you're talking about metals that degrade and are not biologically deleterious in the process of degrading. That's absolutely right. Interestingly, steels are a form of degradable metal that can be of interest. So they actually do rust in the body and the products are released. You know, the iron that's the base of steel is then potentially used by red blood cells to carry oxygen. But the primary alloys that we're interested in are magnesium-based. These are alloys that are strong, have a very nice, long degradation profile, and release alloying elements of magnesium, calcium, zinc, all of which are minerals that can be found in the body that are part of your normal diet. So I know that you and your colleagues have been able to tailor the degradation rate of ECM and other scaffold materials that are not metallic. So I presume the, the aspiration or the, the goal is to also be able to control the rate of degradation of these metallic scaffolds? Yes, that's absolutely correct, and it has been realized to a limited extent thus far. And that's just a matter of changing the chemistry of the metal and also to some extent the processing that it goes through. Fascinating. Dr. Gilbert, I uh, know that uh, it takes many sources of funding to support these uh, very pioneering and innovative studies. 
Can you just give us a bit of insight of how you get support for these programs? Sure. A lot of the funding comes from NIH, the National Institutes of Health, and the National Science Foundation. But for me, particularly as a young investigator, foundation funding has been particularly important in terms of getting the seed funding to start these pilot studies. One example is the McGowan Foundation, which has provided funding to start the pediatric cardiovascular studies, particularly around the biologic Fontan conduit that I mentioned. So without their support, we would be unable to to move forward in these new endeavors. Yes, I know that there's a number of investigators that have been uh, supported by their generosity and their vision, particularly as it relates to cardiac-related issues. Dr. Gilbert, I appreciate you joining us today and sharing your vision and the status of this pioneering research as it relates both to the airway diseases and cardiac problems. For our listeners, we will post on the podcast website a link to Dr. Gilbert's website so that if you wish to uh, explore more, his interest will be possible. As we conclude this podcast, I'd like to remind our listeners that we welcome suggestions you can reach us at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. I also remind you that we're not in a position to diagnose uh, medical conditions via the Internet. As we conclude this podcast, I'd like to thank the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine that sponsors this podcast series and invite you to join us again in two weeks for another exciting interview. Thank you. Thank you.